today, we're going to be back in Matthew chapter 19. Um, we've actually got two separate topics. Uh, the first is just a, a very short passage. It's not going to take us very long to look at. And the second is going to take the, uh, the bigger chunk of our time, and that is the encounter with the rich young ruler. Um, now, to be honest, my, my plan is to get through the rest of chapter 19. That is 18 verses worth of material. We might not make it. So, to increase our chances, um, I'm not going to speak anymore on the subject until we get done reading. So I'm going to ask everybody to stand up and read along with me. Here in Matthew chapter 19, the children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for such to such belong the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, and honor your mother and father, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, And give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. We're going to stop our reading there. Let's pray. Father, this is a message that doesn't make us comfortable in our flesh. This is a message that is very, very, very full of the gospel. Father, help us this morning to handle your word correctly. Help us to understand what is said and what's not. And Father, most of all, help us to glorify you in all that we say and do here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. So, the the first passage there, verses uh, 12 through 15, we can safely assume that the people who were bringing the children to Jesus were part of that multitude that met him, if you flip back a page, to the beginning of chapter 19, when he had finished talking in Galilee, he entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them. It's presumably people from that crowd who brought the children to Jesus. It's relatively safe to assume that the discussion about divorce was probably separated by a good deal of time and maybe even geographically from the beginning of chapter 19 where he moved to Judea and the children. That was probably like a a parenthetical. It took place as part of a different different setting because the Pharisees who were questioning Jesus about divorce would not have been happy with the idea of children being brought to the rabbi, even less so than the uh, disciples. The disciples, we see how they react. 
People are bringing the children to Jesus, and the disciples are chasing them away. They're rebuking them. Jesus has got more important things to do with his time than to deal with your kids. Go on, get out of here. The Pharisees probably would have been even less kind. Why were they bringing the children to Jesus? Bring them so that he could bless them. He could pray over them. He could heal them if they had an illness or a, 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 some kind of ailment or, or sickness or disease. For whatever the reason, what it boils down to is people wanted their children to be as close to Jesus as they could get. Wow, what an idea. Wouldn't it be great if we all wanted that for our kids and grandkids to be as close to Jesus as they can get? Let's expand that just a little bit. If you remember in in chapter 17, chapter 18, where Jesus was talking about the little ones, who are the little ones? That's supposed to be us, right? We're supposed to be childlike in our faith. So wouldn't it be great if we wanted to be as close to Jesus as we could get? Now, what an idea. But the disciples rebuked the people. Jesus had too much on his plate to be bothered with these children. You should be ashamed of taking up this man's time. Do you know who he is? He's on a mission. These 12 men have watched Jesus raise the dead, cleanse the leper, give sight to the blind, make the lame walk. And here they are trying to protect him from wasting his time, from looking childish, from embarrassing them with children. Twelve men who just haven't quite got it yet. There's a whole lot here that we could... We never do that, right? We never... One of the worst events that I ever saw happen in a church service, I felt bad for the family involved, I felt bad for the pastor involved. pastor was a brand new grandfather, and a young couple was visiting the church, and they sat all the way in the back. And it was a longer sanctuary than ours is. It was narrower, but it was longer. So when I say they sat all the way in the back, that, that would be like from this wall to the front doors. And they had a little baby with them. And he tried, he tried really hard to not be distracted by that baby in the service. But he failed miserably because he's a brand new grandfather. And so he asked if they would mind taking the baby to the nursery. Ouch. I know we don't have a big group here. It'd be even smaller if I asked the kids to go elsewhere. (laughs) I've never been an advocate of separating children out from the message of the gospel. Never, ever, 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 ever. They need to hear it just like we need to hear it. But sometimes we do that. We, we, We think maybe the subject matter is too mature for kids to wrap their head around. Look, if I'm not presenting the gospel in such a way that a five-year-old can understand it, I'm doing it wrong. 
because the gospel is that easy. So Jesus corrects the disciples. Let the little children, let the little ones come. Just, I mean, can you see Jesus doing this? People start bringing them kids. This is Jesus. He probably plopped down in the ground, on the ground, right? And threw his arms out wide. In the meantime, Peter and the rest of them are like, no, get out of here with the kids. Jesus is like, are you guys completely daft? Have you not paid attention to anything that I've taught you? Don't you remember what I said about becoming like children? Don't you look at the way the kids are showing the faith that Jesus said we're supposed to have? Because he said, unless you become like one of these little ones, you sit down on the ground where there's a toddler nearby and you go like this. What is that kid going to do? They're probably going to run right straight to you. This is how we know that Jesus smiled that Jesus probably laughed. He probably giggled, as, as undignified as that might sound. Because a person who's a grouch, a person who doesn't smile, a, person, a kid's not going to come to them. And Jesus says, this is what faith looks like. And so he prayed over the kids. He laid hands on the kids. He went on his way. I really wish we were less like the disciples. Our society has no place for children. Our society, our culture, treats children like a checkbox on a checklist. Graduate high school, check. Gone to college, check. Got married, check. Got a place to live, check. Got a job, check. Got a dog, check. Have kids, check. That's not the value of a person. I could probably go on, but I'm not going to. Because I'll get too political if I keep going. So, I'm going to carry on with the scripture here. Um, Jesus went away. He After he spent time with the kids, we don't know how long he spent with the kids. We don't know how many kids there were. We don't know anything about these children. We know Jesus' attitude. Children are welcome with the Savior. And if we're going to be Christ-like, then they better be welcome with us. If you don't have room for kids in your life, if you're gruff and you don't want children near you, then you really need to examine how much Christ am I showing the world. Jesus went on his way, and all three of the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us that a man came to Jesus and asked him the question, what do I have to do to have eternal life? Mark and Luke both tell us that he said, good teacher. And Jesus' answer, why do you call me good? There's only one who's good, and that's God. Is Jesus saying that he's not good? No. No, he's using this as an opportunity 
for those who are paying attention, to understand who he is. The only one who's good is the Father. And yet you call me good teacher because you recognize in me the work of the Father. Here's another one of those questions. Let me ask you. If people look at us, would they call us good? So he comes to Jesus and he asks the question, what do I have to do? There's a flaw in his understanding of eternal life. What do I have to do for salvation? I'd really like to say that this is unique to the Jews. I can't. This is the doctrine behind all other world religions. Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Confucianism, Taoism, Zoroastrianism, worship of the Norse gods, yes, that still happens, paganism, they're all based on this question. What do I have to do? You would expect Jesus to answer like we would. You can't do anything. That's just a dumb question. But he doesn't. Instead, he answers in a way to show this young man the problem with his way of thinking. If you would enter eternal life, keep the commandments. Well, that's not vague at all, is it? Thank you, Jesus. Which ones? Are we talking about the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments? Are we talking about the law that was given in Exodus, the commandments of Leviticus, Deuteronomy? Are we talking the dietary restrictions, the ceremonial restrictions? Are we talking the, the legal practice law that was given? Or are we talking about the oral traditions of the Pharisees? Because remember, the Pharisees, they took things their own direction, right? Jesus says, you want, it, you want eternal life? Keep the commandments. Well, that clears it right up, doesn't it? And that's what the young man says. Which ones? Which commandments do I have to keep? Now, again, I would expect Jesus to tell him the Ten Commandments. But he doesn't. He lists off commandments in order, five through nine, and then he, he tacks on the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, which is in Leviticus Chapter 19, verse 18. So, commandments number 5 through 9, and, and by the way, what's commandment number 10? Just don't covet. Okay? Commandment number 5, honor your parents. Right? Commandment number 6, don't murder. Number 7, don't commit adultery. Number 8, don't steal. Number 9, don't lie. Okay? I may have those last two backwards. It happens. I'm old. Okay? Those are all tangible, viewable, and mostly verifiable commands. Because if I kill somebody, somebody's going to know about it. If I 
commit adultery, somebody's going to know about it. If I lie about something, if I steal something, there's, there's tangible results to those five commandments. If I dishonor my parents, I may not live to adulthood. Remember, that's the only commandment with a promise. Honor your mother and your father that your days may be long. <laughs> In other words, if you don't, your days will not be long. He doesn't bring up commandment number one, you'll have no other gods before me. He doesn't bring up, you'll have no carved images that are supposed to represent me that you bow down to worship. He doesn't bring up, treat my name as holy, don't use it as a useless word. And he doesn't bring up, keep the Sabbath. And he doesn't say, don't covet. Why did Jesus only pick the majority of the second table of the law? Why didn't he say anything about coveting? Well, look at what the young man says. That tells you why. Because his answer is basically, done it, what's left? I've kept those commandments from my youth. I'm a good Jewish boy. He sounds like Peter. (laughs) I've done it. I've never killed anybody. I honored my parents. I didn't commit adultery. I'm not even married. I haven't stolen anything. I haven't lied. Liar. (laughs) And I love my neighbor as myself. I really, really, really uh, like what Mark says in Mark chapter 10, verse 21. Mark puts it this way. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, you lack one thing. Jesus looked at him and loved him. He had compassion on him. He had a soft heart towards this young man. He says, you're, you're missing one thing. Matthew says, if you would be perfect, if you would be complete, go and sell what you have. Give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. Jesus looked at this young man. He saw a man made in the image of God. He saw a man who was trapped in bondage to sin. He saw a man where that image of the Father was marred by sin. He cannot escape. And he thinks that there's something he can do that will open the gates to eternal life. And he feels compassion on him. He loves him. So he tells him one more thing to help him understand what he's missing. Go sell all your stuff and then come follow me. For this young man, eternal life had come down to the question of what do I need to put on the scale in order to make sure I win? What must I do? What a painful question. The problem with that question is the assumption that there's something we can do that will cause God to say, ooh, guess I have to save that one. What value can I add to God's kingdom? 
in and of myself, the answer is none. In fact, it's adding a negative. I've said this before. The only thing that I do that causes God to save me is sin. And I'm not saying that my sin obligates God to save me. I'm saying that if I didn't sin, I wouldn't have anything to be saved from. My sin requires me to either be saved from or to experience punishment. In His grace, God has chosen in Christ to save me, to save you. Please, please understand this. Jesus is not saying that anybody who's saved needs to be a pauper. And I know, I know some of you, I know some of you better than I know others. How many of us would consider ourselves to be on the poor side of the economy? Honestly, on the poor side of the economy. Okay? By United States standards. Just about all of us, right? How many of you rode in a car to get here this morning? (laughs) How many of you had a meal this morning? How about yesterday? How many of you ate food yesterday? Okay. All right, how, how many of you are, um, well, I can see from here, everybody's clothed. Thank you. <laughs> Thank some of you more than others. We're the wealthiest nation on the face of the planet. Tom, I'm going to pick on you. In your circumstance, you are still more wealthy than 80% of the world in your circumstances. The rest of us are probably more wealthy than 95% of the world. Jesus isn't telling us that in order to be saved, we have to be poor. This one more thing that Jesus said, sell all your stuff and give it to the poor. Well, Remember how I said he skipped the first four commandments and number 10, right? This is where he hits them. This is supposed to show him the problem with his statement, I've kept those commandments since my youth. And the young man's response shows us that he hasn't kept a one of those commandments ever. He wasn't ready to abandon his God. Jesus didn't tell him, you're not to have any other gods before me. He said, sell all your stuff. What did the young man worship? His wealth, his comfort, his position, his notoriety in society, the power that he had, the influence that he had. 
Jesus didn't tell him, don't carve any images, because he worshipped the coin and the seat. Don't use God's name in any vain fashion. Oh, you mean by like claiming to follow all the commandments? Keep the Sabbath. This young man would have claimed to have done those things too. Now here's the deal. By the letter of the law, by the words that are written, he's probably right. He had probably never, ever gone to the Gentiles and worshipped one of their gods. He had probably never, ever, ever carved a statue or made a painting and set it up in his house to bow down before it and worship God. He had probably never used the name Yahweh. I mean, the Jews had a special pen. If they had to copy the scriptures, they had a special pen just to write the characters. And it was used for that and only for that. So he had probably never used the name of God in a vain fashion. And he had probably observed the Sabbath growing up in a Jewish house. I can just imagine that it was, it was drilled into him from the get-go that you don't work on the Sabbath at all by the letter of the law. So when he said, I have never dishonored my parents and I've never committed murder and I've never committed adultery and I've never stolen and I've never borne false witness, I've done everything that the law requires. By the letter, he was probably right. You remember the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus said, if you hate somebody, you've committed murder in your heart. If you look at a woman with lust in your eyes, you've committed adultery in your heart. Right? The letter of the law is not what does it. This young man had another God that he relied on for his security, for his status, for his joy, his peace, his sustenance. He worshipped his wealth, his comfort, his control over his future because of his wealth. That's why he went away sad. He was unprepared to rely on God alone. His question shows us that. What must I do to have eternal life? What is the answer? Nothing you can do will get you eternal life. So he went away sad because he was loaded. And so Jesus said to the disciples, picking up in verse 22, Three, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. This must have come as a shock to the disciples. Because in their culture, those who were wealthy 
were considered to have been blessed by God and were more or less shoe-ins for heaven. It was a gimme that obviously God has blessed you with, with material wealth, right? Now, we don't act that way in our society, right? Do we? Well, we don't act that way in the church, do we? I could name names. I'll just call them the prosperity teachers. That God wants you to be rich, you just have to have enough faith. Right? The Jews considered it a sign that you were blessed. That's why Jesus was considered afflicted, because he was broke. Remember Jesus said, I don't even have a place to lay my head. Foxes have dens. Birds have nests. I got nothing. That's why Jesus was considered to be stricken by God. He was poor. He was destitute. People didn't consider him to be of any account because he didn't have anything. Obviously, if God had blessed him, he would have something. And here Jesus says, it's really hard for wealthy people to get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, most people who are wealthy, most but not all, have this issue. Because it's really easy for us to fall into the trap of the love of money. Remember, it is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not money. It is the love of money, the pursuit of money, the obsession with money. That's why we're warned in multiple places. Jesus says, don't be a lover of money. A man can't serve two masters, right? Why? Because he will love one and he'll hate the other one. It's very easy to fall into the trap of that love of money. Now, I'm going to back up just a second. Verse 24, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Show of hands, who has heard about the gate that was so narrow it was called the needle and that you could not take a loaded camel through the gate? Raise your hand if you've heard this story. Okay. All right. That's a crock. There is no archaeological evidence to support that there was a gate by such a name prior to Jesus' time in Jerusalem. There was a gate called the needle in um, Damascus in three or four hundred A.D. after Jesus. Okay, so Jesus wasn't talking about a gate around Jerusalem that it was hard to get a, a camel through. There have been people who said that the word that we have translated as the word camel is actually a typo. It was a typo by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because the word that Jesus used was the word for cord or rope, which if you look at the Greek word, there's like an accent mark difference. It's really, really, really close. Okay? I don't think that's the case either. Because this is the divinely inspired word of God, I really don't think God would divinely inspire three different typos. Okay? At least they're consistent. 
part of the problem I have with these answers is because they try to soften what Jesus said about a camel going through the eye of a needle. They're trying to make it because if, can a camel go through the eye of a needle? No. I've been to the desert. I've been to the circus. Camels are big. Needles, not so much. Okay? If I had a needle big enough that a camel could walk through the eye of, I would not want to be hemming my pants with that. Okay? It'd leave a bigger hole than what I was trying to sew up. So by that logic, if it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, and that's impossible, then how easy is it for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus would be saying that there are no rich people in heaven. He's right. Do you get that? He's right. Here's why I say that. Because the disciples were surprised. If rich people who are blessed by God cannot be saved, then who can be? If people who have experienced God's blessing cannot be saved, what about those that are afflicted and poor? How are they going to get in? And Jesus says, with man, this is really hard. Is that what he said? No, the word is impossible, not possible. With Man, this is impossible. No man, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, can affect salvation for themselves or anybody else. Period. Paragraph. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Even the impossible. If God said to a camel, I want you to walk through the eye of that needle it would be possible. See, when I understand my position before God, doesn't matter the size of my bank account or the value of my IRA or my net worth, what do I own when I stand before God? I own my sin. That's all I own. I own nothing. I have no wealth because all that I am and all that I have belongs to him. When I understand that, I'm no longer a rich man. Because I understand my value. And my value is not in my wealth. My value is in Christ. So it is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because in order to be saved, you have to first understand that you ain't rich. It doesn't. You can have wealth. You can have the blessings that God has poured out on you. But when you understand who you are before God, you don't own that wealth anymore. And you're no longer rich. Then Peter... Verse 27, then Peter says, I love Peter. 
as Jesus is as Jesus is doing all this teaching, I can see the disciples' eyes getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Because first off, rich people are supposed to be blessed by God. They're supposed to be shoe-ins for the kingdom of heaven. What do you mean they can't be saved? What do you mean it's impossible for a rich person to enter heaven? What are you talking about, Jesus? Jesus says, with God, all things are possible, right? So Peter says, we've left everything and followed you. What, what do we get? Isn't that a typical response? Now, see, the rich young ruler says, what do I have to do to get? Peter says, we already did it. What about us? Jesus said, truly I say to you, in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on his throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. I got to tell you, I would have been happier if verses 27 through 30 didn't exist. They'd make my job easier standing up here. Because here's the problem with this whole passage, right? The rich young man, what do I need to do to earn my way to heaven? How do I get to heaven? Right? Peter's question. We've given up everything. What do we get when we get to heaven? What is the treasure in heaven? We get to stand and talk to Jesus face to face. We get to see the glory of God without worrying about being burnt to ash because of our sin. We are sinless up there. There is no more. There's no more pain. There's no more sorrow. There's no more hurt. There's no more loss. There's no more grief. The the treasure of heaven is the presence of Christ. I could I could live in a cardboard lean-to in heaven and be okay. The reason I say I'd be happier if that passage didn't exist because it would make my job easier is because we have this idea that heaven is the reward. No. It's not. The reward is being with Jesus. The reward is not... (laughs) How many of y'all like watching the sunrise? You're abnormal people. All right, how many of y'all like watching the sunset? Okay. All right, I I prefer the sunset to the sunrise. (laughs) There won't be any more of that. Because God Himself will be our light source. How many of y'all like to sit on the front porch during a thunderstorm and listen to the rain come down and the thunder and there won't be any more? 
there'll be no more storms. Y'all know that, that my, my preferred method of vacationing is on a cruise ship where I hear the water lapping. The description of heaven says there is no more sea. I'm bothered by that. <laughs> but I'm not going to care because I'm going to be able to talk to Jesus. We're told that our works are going to be judged and, and they'll pass through the fire and, and then whatever comes out of that fire will be able to fashion a crown that we can throw at Jesus' feet. How many of y'all own a crown right now? How many of y'all have jewelry? You have any jewelry that's worth anything? A little bit, right? Yeah, maybe sentimental value. Just go ahead and throw it in a pile on your way out the door. We're told that we're going to have crowns made of gold and silver and precious gems, and we're going to throw them on the ground in front of Jesus. We're just, yeah, here you go. Because all of that is worth nothing in comparison to him. So that's the problem with Peter's question. That's the problem with the young man's question. How do I get into heaven? Jesus said, sell all your stuff and give it to the poor, right? And then what did he say next? And then follow me. If the young man wanted to be in heaven, he would have wanted to be as close to Jesus as he could. Just like those little ones. If Peter and the rest of the disciples understood, the question wouldn't have been, well, we've given up everything. What do we get? Because they're walking with Jesus every day. The treasure in heaven is the sun. We make a big deal out of the gate made of pearl. The street, singular, <laughs> that is paved with gold, that's pounded so transparent as to be like glass. We, we get so excited about all of those things. I have to agree with Paul. All of those things that I once counted as such a wonderful thing are nothing but dung, manure, poo. I'm not looking forward to a pearly gate. I'm not looking forward... I am looking forward after a couple of thousand years being able to talk to the likes of Martin Luther and, and John Calvin and R.C. Sproul. I am looking forward to seeing my loved ones who are going to be there. That's all secondary. That's all. That's, that's way down the road. I'm going to spend the first couple dozen millennium just hanging out with Jesus.
and then probably a millennium or two after that too because that's the treasure in heaven. 